but I wanted you to make sure you got the bugs out of your teeth there. And I did. Everything was okay. <laughs> Isn't Howie wonderful? Would you like to say thank you? And Marilyn? If you go into ministry, you need to remember the importance of someone who handles the worship and the music as it relates to the church you serve or the camp you direct or whatever may be the organization you're a part of. You work hand in glove with that person and they're not just a throw-in part of the staff. They're a right arm or a left arm to you. And Howie has been that for us since 1980. When I met him in 1971, I leaned over to Cynthia when I was, we were up at Mount Hermon and I said, there's the man I want to have as our music and worship leader someday. And he was busily involved in uh, ministry at Westmont College where he stayed for 17 years on the faculty. And we got him in a weak moment and we uh, had him join us and it's been great ever since. Cynthia and I came back from a a terrific vacation time away. It was um, August of the year. It was hot down in Orange County. And uh, when we opened the door, the house had been closed for about uh, eight days. We'd been gone. There was a bad stench. It was a terrible stink that we met as we walked in the door. I didn't know what it was from. We thought maybe there, the disposal, we hadn't completely emptied it, so we switched that on, and that was fine flushed all the toilets and went out of the garage, thought maybe there was something out there that had died or there was nothing. Went out to the shed. We have a shed back behind our house where we keep a lot of things stored for the season and nothing was there. I thought maybe it was the neighbor and the wind was blowing in our direction or just <laughs> bad air. Uh, it wasn't that at all. We went upstairs and she opened the double doors that opened to our upstairs furnace and air conditioning unit. And a smell came out of there, which meant that it was somewhere in the attic. Something had died in the attic. Well, it was late in the evening by then, and uh, we thought, well, we'll stay downstairs. Um, I'll sleep on the overstuffed chair. She'll sleep on the sofa. And we sort of uh, retched and gagged through the night. And I said, this is terrible we got to get rid of whatever that is, and uh, I don't want to go up there, so I called my son. <laughs> I said, Kurt, uh, 31 years I've loved you, taken wonderful care of you, encouraged you in your education, been a real father to you. He said, what do you want, Dad? I said, there's this little problem up in the attic. Maybe you could run up there for us sometime this morning, like in the next 10 minutes. Um, <laughs> So he did. He came over. We put extra clothes on him and we put a bandana around his face. And uh, I stayed in the bedroom and prayed for him as he went up into the attic. And I stuck my head in the attic a time or two and I said, how are you doing? He said, okay. And finally he lets out his blood-curdling scream like, well, as he puts it, this is worse than a Stephen King novel. I said, what is it? He said, it is a big, dead possum and the thing is is begun to decay and there's maggots on it and there <laughs> so 
So I, I get him this cardboard box and I say, here. <laughs> so he drops his carcass in the cardboard box and he slides it across the attic and I take it and wrap it in a big plastic bag and haul it over to the Mormon church and leave it on the front. No, I didn't do that. No, don't applaud that. I did not do that. I thought about it, but I did not do that. Well, uh, we thought the stink would leave, you know. We thought we got rid of the possum. That'd be all there is to the stink. It's over, done with, forget it. But it stayed, and it stayed. Uh, we found that it had died just above our master bedroom closet. And so all of my clothes, it had died right above my clothes. I knew my clothes were bad, but not that bad. So we hauled all those clothes out of the closet because they were picking up the smell. We took all of Cynthia's clothes out of the end of the closet, and we took all of the things, shoes, all the ties, all the stuff that you hang in your closet. We got it all out, put it all on the bed, made a big mound, and we thought, well, maybe we can spray in here with a little stuff and get rid of the smell. Well, the smell didn't go away. It stayed. It stayed. It stayed. For days, it stayed. And uh, about the second or third day, we realized there were things crawling on the floor. They were the maggots. Who had crawled, they had crawled down in between the two-by-fours and had come out and, you know, under the, the carpet and had worked their way up. And so we were vacuuming maggots. Uh, you haven't lived until you have awakened in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom and stepped on a maggot. Uh, make matters worse, they began to crawl down the first floor, and then they began to crawl into the kitchen, they crawled into our family room, and uh, you understand, I, I live with a wife who is really clean, and really a perfectionist. I mean, do you alphabetize your socks, <laughs> and the spices on the shelves? I mean, this lady, to have a maggot in the home, I mean, she lives with one, but she never has them crawling around, you know, and so... We find out through uh, research that there is a chemical you can use which will take away the smell. You're not going to believe this, but this is the truth. It is called anti-icky poo. <laughs> it is. That's the name of it. Anti-icky poo. So we buy 27 gallons. No, not really. A couple of big jugs. And you have to spray it right on the place where the carcass has died. Okay. So I call up my son, <laughs> Kurt. He's got it by now. He's a great kid. He comes over. He goes in, gives it the major squirt, 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 squirt. But what you, we forgot about, while it did begin to take away the stink, what we forgot about is that maggots turn into flies, filthy, ugly, nasty, disease-carrying flies. So we walk in one late August afternoon, and all the maggots have blossomed, or whatever maggots do when they turn into flies, and the place is loaded with flies. Well, you'll be happy to know that since that happened last August, we have finally, finally gotten rid of the smell and all the problems that grew out of the smell. And you might wonder what has, has to do with what I want to say today. Let me go back to 1985, 86, even before then. Actually, for centuries, the church has existed and been sort of tolerated, often ignored, 
and appropriately so. The, the media, the world system, has looked over their glasses at us and have been suspicious of us in whatever denomination or brand of our Christianity, it has sort of tolerated us until about 1987, 88, they smelled something dead in the attic. I happened to be, have been in Orlando, Florida at the time. We were doing an Insight for Living rally. And I picked up the newspaper and I was reading the Orlando Sentinel and I said to Cynthia in the hotel room, this looks like trouble. And the name Jim Baker was spread all over the front page of the Sentinel because it happened on the far east coast, down southeast coast. It naturally flowed quickly into the news in southern and central Florida, where we were. And sure enough, it turned into an awful carcass. If that wasn't bad enough, there was another name that emerged. And then there was a fight between that organization, within that organization, and the other. And then there were others that grew until finally it became obvious to everybody that the stench could not be overlooked. And even for us, who may not be numbered among their group, we suffered for it. Every radio ministry suffered. Every television ministry suffered. Many church ministries suffered, though not as directly. But people became suspicious of anyone who was involved in media ministry because of the connection with the, the dead things that had been found in the attic, now recent history, but still very much a part of the thinking of the world system. I don't mean this to be clever or funny. I do mean this for you to remember, and perhaps by using these words you will. I think you and I are the anti-icky-poo of the church that lives on. You are one of the reasons, and I am one of the reasons, that the world will lose its suspicion. And forget about the stench. The way you do ministry, the way I do ministry, the way we as a body of men and women in the family of God do ministry will say more and represent more than we would ever believe in a world that thinks all of us are a bunch of dead possums. And we are not. That is a very, very small segment in the family of God. And don't be too proud because it's charismatic and you're not has nothing to do with why they failed. Had to do with ethics or the lack of such. It had to do with integrity, the lack of such. It had to do with fraud. And as a result, the embarrassment has swept across those ministries so that they will never, ever be the same. And don't you ever forget it. The public trust is beginning to be won back ever so slowly, and ever so carefully, and you will discover as you gain a few years in age and a few years in ministry, you will discover that a scorned individual comes back very, very slowly. Someone who has been burned holds off a long time wondering if there's anyone he can trust or she can trust. 
Talk to victims of molestation and they will tell you it takes, it seems, half a life to get to where you can really relate intimately with the opposite sex. The horrors of those scars live on so that you must wonder, you must wonder what it means to do ministry the right way and for the right reason. How can you be preserved from such an, an error of judgment? How can I be uh, preserved from making the same foolish mistakes in my life, in our life at Insight for Living or at the church that we love so much? I was thumbing through the uh, letters of Paul looking for something on ministry and came to that grand section in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you brought a testament or a Bible with you, uh, you may turn. If, if not, just listen. I want to read, make a few comments, and then have us leave with some understanding about what ministry is and what it is not as I see it. Then I've asked Howie to lead us in a closing song of worship about the Spirit of God and His hand on our lives. 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore, since we have this ministry as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the things hidden because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. But by the manifestation of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. We have this treasure Verse 7 includes these words. We have this treasure in earthen vessels, mere human bodies. We have this treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels that the surpassing greatness may be, that the surpassing greatness of the power may be of God and not of ourselves. That's far enough. Let me make an opening comment and give you three pegs to hang your thoughts on, and then I want to apply it. We must be willing to leave the familiar methods without disturbing the essential message. We must be willing to leave the, the familiar methods where necessary without disturbing the essential message. If you want to do ministry the right way, you have to keep that uppermost in your mind. The generation of the 1990s is not the same generation as the 1950s. The generation of the 1990s will not be the same as the generation of the years 2020 and 2030, which will be in the prime of your life in ministry when you stop and think about it. So the methods will change, but the message remains essential, and you're getting big doses of it here at the Master's College without apology. You're learning to do music that honors God. You're learning that all truth is God's truth. You're discovering that God's word does address the needs of people and you don't have to fuss around with it. It speaks in relevant terms. People just need to see how relevant it is. You don't have to make the Bible relevant. It is relevant. In light of that, let me give you three thoughts in the balance of my time, which I hope you will remember. Number one, with every ministry, special mercy is needed. Verse 1, since we have this ministry 
as we receive mercy, we do not lose heart. With every ministry, special mercy is needed. There's a special mercy needed by the faculty to minister to a student body at the master's college. There's a special mercy needed by the pastor to minister to a flock. There's a special mercy needed by the nurse to minister to those who are under her or his care. There's a special ministry or, or a mercy needed to minister in a campsite, on a campground, as you serve as a camp a counselor or perhaps even a director of one or, or one who, uh, who is involved in the programming of the camp. Special mercy is needed with every kind of ministry. That's part of the giftedness sent, you're learning here at the school about spiritual gifts. You and I are gifted with at least one, sometimes several spiritual gifts. With the gifts that come along with our ministry, there is a mercy added to it. You've met Howie and Marilyn Stevenson. I have watched Howie in practice with his choir. It is something wonderful to behold. There was a special mercy needed to do music with a group of people who will be doing the music or with a congregation who will be singing along with one another. With every ministry, a special mercy is needed. And you know what happens? We don't lose heart because the mercy is there. That's why a faculty member will stay year after year after year. That's why a John MacArthur will stay 20 and more years at a church uh, uh, there, there in the valley. You look back into the history of the church, you will find that ministers stayed for the long haul as they drew upon the mercy that came with the gift that, uh, that they exercised in serving. With every ministry, a special mercy is needed. It keeps you from losing heart. I notice, secondly, now get this, in every ministry, the same things have to be rejected. Did I go over verse 2 too quickly? Because in verse 2, there are three specifics that are to be rejected. And get these clearly fixed in your minds. Today, it seems the most remote possibility to you that you would ever defect, but you will be tempted more than you realize to soften or dilute the truth of God. These three temptations will be yours to deal with, if not now, soon. So the point is, in every ministry, the same things have to be rejected. What are they? First, hiding shameful things. See how he puts it? We have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Hiding shameful things must be rejected. One of the characteristics of a person with integrity is that you tell the truth. When you find out that wrong is happening, you deal with it. You, if necessary, expose it. You don't cover it. You don't call it another name. You don't hide it in the shadows of your closet. You don't ignore it because it's a friend on the staff with you. It is wrong. It is hurting the ministry. And as Achan in the camp caused the entire body of Hebrews to experience defeated AI because of his one sin, so it can be in a ministry. How do I do ministry the right way for all the right reasons? I refuse to hide shameful things. That happened in the ministries I named uh, earlier, and it could just as easily happen here at this school or in the ministry you will be involved in in the not-too-distant future. Don't hide shameful things. 
We have just been through one of the most horrendous experiences of my entire 30-plus years in ministry. I graduated from Dallas Seminary in the early 60s, and I've been engaged in pastoral ministry since, since then, but last September I hit an all-time low in heartache. One of our long-time trusted elders, we found out, was guilty of child molestation. And when the news hit me while I was away at a camp, it just took away the joy of the rest of the time at that particular conference. I knew there was no way it could be covered up, nor should it be. Though this man was an elder, this man was a trusted member, long-time member. He had been there before I came in 1971. This individual had roots that went into missions involvement, and the, and the uh, girls that he had molested even went into that, those areas as well. And it was my unhappy task as a leader to direct our staff and our, our elders through that period of uncertain and uncharted waters. It was horrible. It was as bad as you think right now and even worse. I'll never forget that dark Thursday night when the man was in the room with us having been confronted, and it was my task to renounce him and to stand against what he had done and to ex express discipline from our church and then to remove him from our board. I remember as he walked out the door with our counselor, David Carter. David was with him. They walked out the door and they began to leave, and the man cried like a wounded animal. It was a heartbreaking sound. I'll never forget it. Sometime it haunts me in the middle of the night. It was the cry of a man who knew he had hidden shameful things. You cannot do that and succeed in God's eyes. Don't try. In every ministry, some, the same things have to be rejected, hiding shameful things. By the way, the man is still under discipline. We are in touch with him every other month. There are regular occasions where we are determining the process of restoration. So it's not just discipline for the sake of watching him squirm. He has also shown some evidences of concern and repentance in it. And along with that is his wife. And how do you deal with her in the middle of it? And so much denial is involved. I'll tell you, there isn't a course at the Master's College. There's not a course at the Master's Seminary. There's not a course at Dallas Theological Seminary. There isn't a course at Trinity Seminary that will tell you what to do and how to do it when you need to get it done. You've got to have the wisdom of God. You've got to have your own integrity. If that's not intact, who are you to be meeting out discipline on someone else? It's an act of hypocrisy. I'm telling you, men and women, this is serious stuff you're involved in. That's why you've got to take a break. Why you got to go crazy and get a motorcycle and get out of town. It really helps. Second thing you got to reject is doing deceitful things. See how he puts it? Uh, not only do we renounce the things hidden because of shame, we do not walk in craftiness or adulterate the word of God. We do not hide shameful things. We do not do deceitful things. Listen to me on this. Do not handle the money in your ministry. Do not handle the money. Do not have the key that opens the door to where they count the money. Stay away from the money. Be ignorant of who gives what. Don't take money from people down the front of the church. 
Don't handle money for someone to give it to somebody else. People want to give you an offering. Tell them there's the usher. Give it to him. Stay away from things that could leave the appearance of evil. Don't do deceitful things. And you know your nature better than I know it, and I know mine better than you do, and I know areas where I can become deceptive. And the longer I live, the less I want to do that. The longer I live, the less effective years of ministry I have in front of me rather than behind me. And I want to die with great memories. I don't want my family to have to kick open the closet and find the skeleton. I don't want that heartache. And I don't want them to have to wade through it. Hiding shameful things, doing deceitful things, it means cunning and clever. And the third is corrupting precious things. You reject the corruption of precious things. You do not adulterate the word of God, but by manifestation of truth, you commend yourself to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. It's a frightening thought, isn't it? Your entire life is lived in the sight of God. There is nothing that is hidden or closed before his eyes. Okay? Number three, through every ministry, a certain style must be modeled. Through every ministry, a certain style must be modeled, and we could even add communicated. You know what the style is? We do not preach ourselves, but Christ as Lord, ourselves as servants. There's the style. That'll work. That'll work, no matter where you are, large or small ministry, stateside or outside the boundaries of the United States, with youth, with adults, with children, with men, with women. That'll work. People love servanthood because it is so Christ-like. You are not graduating from the master's college as the shell answer man for the Bible. You are not the person who has all the answers. You're the learner. You're the student. You stay a student. You remain a servant. You don't look for people to carry your bags. You look for people whose bags you can carry. You don't look for the limelight. You look for people you can put in the limelight. You don't clamor for the teaching office. James 3 says that. Don't clamor for the teaching office knowing you'll be judged by a stricter standard. C.S. Lewis says when he came into the kingdom, he came in kicking and screaming. I think that's a great way to go into any ministry. Reluctantly, hesitantly, being pushed in by the Spirit of God where doors are opened and you are outside your own manipulative powers. You are pushed into this ministry. The door closes and it's locked behind you and that's where God wants you to serve. Nobody in his right mind would stay in Southern California. But when God puts you here, locks the door behind you, that's where you're supposed to serve. Even though you know there are beautiful spots everywhere else, you know it's here that God wants you to be. And you serve him as a servant rather than as Lord. So important, especially for you who are so gifted. I fear more for you than the klutzes. I fear most for you who are eloquent 
or you have a lovely voice. You can speak well before the public. You have per persuasive powers. I get nervous when I meet young men and women like that because I think, oh, wow. While they have great opportunities, the tests that will come on their character, you just stay a servant. I, um, oh, by the way, uh, let me give you a great thought. I got this from uh, Don Campbell, president of Dallas Seminary. Campbell said he read a book. Uh, he didn't remember much in the book except one thing. It referred, this person referred to himself as a turtle on a fence post. Not a great way to put it. He said, anytime you see a turtle on a, on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. Every one of you, including me, every one of us is a turtle on a fence post. Somebody put us where we are. That's called the grace of God. No turtle can climb up, climb up the post on his own. Some of you will be used in wonderful capacities, and I praise God for that. Look at the power that's here by way of potential. And the Lord will choose to lift you and put you on that fence post. As long as you were there, you remember he put you there. I, um, I, I read recently the work of uh, Henri Nouwen, Roman Catholic priest. He has um, written a book, a number of books. This one is called In the Name of Jesus, Reflections on Christian Discipleship. I, um, I was moved over the book. Not normally one uh, that, that I would be attracted to, but it was his model that, that grabbed me. His background was at Notre Dame, Yale, and Harvard. Not bad resume, huh? For 20 years in the academic world as a teacher of pastoral psychology, pastoral theology, and Christian spirituality, Nowen says, I began to experience a deep inner threat. As I entered my 50s and was unable to, and, and was able to realize the unlikelihood of my doubling my years, I came face to face with the simple question, did becoming older bring me closer to Jesus Christ? Are you closer to Christ now than you were four years ago when you came into the school? Or three years or two years or even a year? You love the Lord more now than you did back when you were first saved? Is it a love affair that nothing is going to break? The man says it wasn't true in my life. So he began to pray. He sought the Lord and the Lord began to reveal to him that he was in this high, mighty place on the staff at Harvard, the most... Uh, what prestigious spot a faculty member can have in the eyes of many in the educational world. But he said, I was, I was going hungry there. So he met a man named Jean Vanier, the founder of the L'Arche, L-apostrophe A-R-C-H-E, the L'Arche Community for the Mentally Handicapped People. And it was so obvious to Henri Nouwen that he was to go and work and live among them that he left all of the prestige of Harvard and he went to this small little community and worked at a place called Daybreak. That's the story of it in a book called In the Name of Jesus. I love his philosophy of ministry. He says, when I look at the temptations Christ faced, I realize they're the same that I face as a minister of Jesus Christ. Number one, the great temptation to be self-reliant. Second, the great temptation to be spectacular. Third, the great temptation to be powerful. All of these standing against the whole concept of being a servant. 
I would love to know that when graduation happens in the not too distant future that the master's college will graduate a graduating class of servants. I was speaking at a commencement exercise several years ago in the heart of America, forget the school, and I was sitting on the platform where faculty members were lined up alongside me and the valedictorian was announced and everybody broke into applause, everybody but the faculty member sitting next to me who I happen to know was this person's major professor. And I leaned over, he happened to be a Dallas graduate, and I said, uh, hey, I called him by name, I said, uh, it's obvious you're not applauding. He said, that's because I know her. He said, I, I wish we'd give awards for attitude. She'd be at the bottom of the list. What a comment, huh? Brightest kid in the school, but she wasn't a servant. A little surly little arrogant. And this happened to be a Christian college. I thought, how tragic that they're all applauding this woman because she has brains, but she doesn't have a sweet spirit, doesn't have a servant's heart. He said, I could tell you a half dozen stories that you wouldn't believe, but she gets the award because she's got 4.0. I would love to think that when graduation day came at Master's College, that those who get the applause are those with the great attitudes. Because that's what will last in ministry. I'm through. My time is up. My prayer for you is that the Lord will take what has been said and rivet into your mind at least one thought you will take with you for the rest of your life. And someday in the future, you will write me and say, remember on the 26th of April, 1993, when you spoke to our our uh, student body, you said, then you name it, and I want to tell you how that has impacted my life. Now, to me, that's worth waiting for. My hope is that the Spirit of the living God will fall on you in fresh and new ways so that he will not only melt you but mold you, that he might fill you and use you in whatever capacity he may be pleased to do. I've asked Howie to lead us in that song as we close our time together today. Melt me, mold me, and fill me and use me.